Um, a couple of other things that I, I meant to mention. Um, this is the third week that we're announcing the CUTIGS application for membership. And so, Lord willing, we'll officially receive them in next Sunday. And then j just a reminder that in this season of our church life, um, we have a self-serve nursery that's across the way. Um, and we believe that children are heritage from the Lord. And uh, children, even the youngest children, are welcome in our worship services. And so um, we're not trying to create this, this hall of silence here where you can hear a pin drop. So if you uh, hear a baby cry, that's a signal of blessing from, from God. So those couple of additional announcements. Okay, well, we're continuing on in our series of studies on uh, Christ in the Psalms. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at Psalm 110, which is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. And uh, today, we're looking at Psalm 22. And uh, the reason we're looking at Psalm 22 is because the words from verse 1 were on our Lord's lips as he hung upon the cross. And then um, the New Testament uh, makes other references to Psalm 22. So it's clearly a, a messianic psalm. And some, some Jewish rabbis recognized it as, as a Jewish rabbi, as a messianic psalm as well. So we're going to be looking at this. It's a, a long psalm, so we'll be going pretty quickly through it. Notice, by the way, the uh, heading there. I don't mean, so in my ESV, it says, uh, why have you forsaken me? Does yours say that? Or something like that. that that's a man-made title, just to keep things organized and to give us an idea of what the psalm is about. Some psalms actually have design. Um, inspired headings, and this one does. So when it says to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, uh, that heading is given by inspiration of God like, like the text. And so uh, this is a psalm of David, and I mentioned that it's a messianic psalm, and um, Jesus ends up quoting from it himself, as he suffered on Calvary's cross. And so we're to understand that uh, David wrote Psalm 22 based on his experience. But just looking at David's experience cannot exhaust the meaning and significance of Psalm 22. There, there are some things in the psalm that seem to apply very specifically and uniquely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll see that as we go on. And so David may not have even been aware that when he wrote Psalm 22, he was actually writing about the coming Messiah in his death and his resurrection. But the scriptures don't depend on the knowledge and awareness of the human writers because ultimately behind the scenes, superintending the writing activity of the human authors was the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit used David 
in his totality as a man and uh, including his experience, whatever kind of trial or trials that he was writing about in Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit was using that whole thing as a living, breathing prophecy foreshadowing of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, there are two main headings in Psalm 22. The text breaks down uh, pretty clearly between two sections. The first section is the longest one, 21 verses, Christ's suffering on the cross. And then the second section, verses 22 through 31, Christ's glorious resurrection. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's start with verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And we don't know David's circumstances that moved him to write these words. Sometimes in some of the Psalms, uh, we, we do know, whether it's the heading or whether it's details in the Psalm, uh, we have a pretty good idea of what David's circumstances were. Not so Psalm 22. We don't know why David felt forsaken, uh, abandoned of the Lord, but we do know Jesus' circumstances when he uttered these words. Matthew records for us when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46 Similarly, Mark 15 and verse 34. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by God when he hung upon the cross. And this was an act of judgment on God's part. God the Father had intentionally distanced himself, intentionally separated himself from the kind of fellowship that the Father and Son had experienced together from eternity past. The Father had eternally delighted in the Son, and the Son eternally loved the Father. And there was glory between them. The word was with God and the word was God. But at this particular point in time when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's quoting these words from Psalm 22, at that particular point in time, there was a break in the fellowship within the Godhead. And why is that? Well, the Bible is really clear. It's because at that point in time, Jesus was the world's worst sinner. He, he was the most guilty human being who had ever lived. The, the most vile, the most unholy and unrighteous human being imaginable. And of course, we know that that's not because Jesus actually sinned himself. 
He himself knew no sin. He was separated from sin. But this was because Jesus was identifying not just with us, but with our sin. Jesus was becoming our scapegoat. This was the moment in time when so many of the passages that we read in the New Testament were, were actually being applied to Jesus' experience. Like 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Or 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree as he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So again, just to be clear, it's not that Jesus himself actually sinned, but the sins, the guilt of all of his people was being imputed to him at this particular point in time. And it wasn't pretend, it wasn't make-believe. God counted Jesus as the conglomeration, the, the sum total of human wickedness and rebellion and sin and transgression, all in one particular individual. That's why Jesus cried out this cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David moves on in verse 2. And he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And, but I, and by night, but I find no rest. So here's David, in whatever circumstance he found himself in, doing what a faithful believer does. You're going through trials. Life is hard. There are tribulations. And so you pray. David prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Day and night, he prayed. And he felt no relief. He felt no peace. And that felt to David like this abandonment by God was permanent. And if you think about Jesus... His suffering on the cross lasted about six hours, certainly not an eternity. But in that six hours, in that finite period of time, Jesus was plunged into the eternal darkness of the infinite wrath of God against human sin. But the sense of abandonment didn't mean loss of confidence in God. So you'll notice in verse 3, Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. Faith was still hanging on. Even in verse 1, it's, it's not just God, God, it's my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And then here in verse 3, there's this acknowledgement, yet you are holy. In David's case, even though I don't see you answering my prayers. And in Jesus' case, even though he had so profoundly experienced this sense of abandonment from God, yet they both say, yet you are holy. And that's a great lesson for us because sometimes when we go through suffering and trials, the first thing that goes out the door is our trust in the holiness of God. We, we say, it's not fair. We say, why? As if God owes us that kind of answer. As if God depends on our approval for his providence in our lives, even dark providence. But instead, David, Jesus, acknowledged the holiness of God. And thinking again about the cross of Jesus, the cross vindicated rather than violated the holiness of God. Because when all was said and done and Jesus died and rose from the dead, that enabled God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The holiness of God is vindicated in the cross. Then in verses 4 and 5, there's more testimony here that uh, neither David nor Jesus stopped trusting in God. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And so here, let's say David, and his, as he's the human author, even in his, mo his moment of feeling abandoned, he's thinking back to God keeping his promises, to God's faithfulness. And he's praising God for this, and he's also reminding himself of this. And that's what we do, by the way, not only when we pray, but when we sing God's praises. We, we sing in order to praise God, to worship God. But singing is also important for us. When, when we sing the words of these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, they teach and admonish us as well because we need to have our faith strengthened and refreshed we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God Amen. and the holiness of God and the truth of the gospel. And that seems to be what, what uh, David is alluding to here in verses 4 and 5. Both David and Jesus trusted in God's deliverance. They, um, David here remembers the deliverance that Israel experienced. 
And we don't know how God delivered David specifically, but God delivered Jesus by raising him from the dead. Jesus died, he suffered, but he didn't stay dead. And the third day he rose again. Then we come to verses six through eight. And uh, here in particular, uh, we see words that we just cannot fit into the narrative of David's life. They seem to describe in vivid detail the, the scene of Christ's crucifixion. So notice verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Worm is an illustration of humiliation. A worm is a lowly creature, unable to defend itself against being stepped on. And remember, um, well, note, notice the second half of verse 6, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That was Jesus. It was a crowd of Jesus' own people who cried out for his blood, Crucify him, crucify him. Jesus, the eternal word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, he came to his own and his own received him not. Verses seven and eight. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And again, there's, there's no record of any circumstance in David's life where this passage applies, or applied. But we sure see it fulfilled in the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Look with me in Matthew Chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, and verses 39 through 44. At this point, Jesus is on the cross, and starting in verse 39, we read, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so this dark scene around the cross is foreshadowed here in David's words in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Notice verses 9 and 10. 
Here's uh, another expression of faith. David writes, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. As far back as David could remember, he trusted God. He loved God. We're told about uh, Timothy's upbringing. Paul writes about that in 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, where Paul wrote to Timothy, and that from childhood... You have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make one wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. We're told that uh, John the Baptist, when he was in Elizabeth's womb, leapt within her womb when he was in the physical presence of the unborn Jesus in Mary's womb. And Jesus... David, like any other fallen sinner, even from youth, if he's trusting in God, and David was, that took the supernatural power of God. He does say there, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. But Jesus had no regeneration to experience, no new birth that he required. No being born again like, like all other people of faith. Because unlike us, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. All of us, when we're conceived and then born into this world, it's a blessed thing. Children are a heritage from the Lord and life, human life is a precious gift from God. And, and as joyous as babies are, and, and they are for sure, every one of us, when we're born, are born dead. We're born spiritually dead because of original sin, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And, and it's not until God causes us to be born again through the message of the gospel that we do actually trust in God. But, but Jesus, who never knew no sin, Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, ever since he was enfleshed in our humanity, even from Mary's womb, trusted in God. And that comforted him, no doubt, when he hung on the cross. And both Jesus and David knew that God would not ultimately and eternally abandon them. That's the overarching uh, ethos here in these first few verses of Psalm 22, this, this abandonment. But it wasn't abandonment without hope. It wasn't abandonment without faith. It wasn't this um, just surrendering themselves to a hopeless, eternal 
ultimate abandonment from God. Notice verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. The unspoken part, the implied part is, there is none to help but you. You and you alone are my help. If you don't help, there's no one else who can. In verses 12 through 13, David uses this poetic language to describe the sense of being surrounded by his enemies. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And we read from Matthew's account about Jesus being surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by Roman soldiers who were professional torturers and executioners, surrounded by the Jewish religious leaders who fought among themselves but had one thing in common. They were against Jesus. They were mocking him. The, the crowd cried out for his crucifixion, was mocking him and wondering, how could this guy possibly think of claiming to be the king of Israel? Look, look at him now. Surrounded by his enemies. But then it really gets interesting. In uh, verses 14 through 18, David describes physical suffering that doesn't seem to fit any situation in his life recorded in Scripture, doesn't even seem to fit any other form of suffering except crucifixion, which is remarkable because crucifixion was the invention of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire in 1000 BC didn't exist. Listen to these words. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen to this remark from the pulpit commentary on this passage. David was at no time in the circumstances here described. He was never without a helper, never despised of the people, never stripped of his clothes, never in the state of exhaustion, weakness, and emaciation that are spoken of, 
never pictured either in his, or never pierced either in his hands or feet, never made a gazing stock, never insulted by having his garments parted among his persecutors or lots cast upon his vesture. But it did happen to Jesus when he was crucified. But still, Jesus never stopped trusting in God. Verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off, echoing verse 11, be not far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There was still hope in the midst of this thick darkness of suffering. But then, we come to verse 22 and there's this uh, notable, obvious, profound change in tone. Verses 1 through 21 has a very doom and gloom sound to it intentionally. But verses 22 through the end of the chapter, not so, completely different. And that's because ultimately, David is writing here about Christ's glorious resurrection. So notice verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What? I thought that your hands and your feet are pierced through. I thought that you're surrounded by enemies. I, I thought that God had abandoned you, forsaken you. Now all of a sudden, it's, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's because Jesus was raised from the dead. He really died. He really tasted death for everyone. But he was also really raised from the dead. And he lives. He lives today. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven. He still lives upholding all things by the power of his word. And he lives in the hearts of believers like you and me. Jesus lives And Jesus values the congregation of God's people. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, in his resurrection, doesn't just minister to us as individuals. Thank God he does. But he seems to be particularly focused on the congregation. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus did promise that where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in 
your midst. We're the body of Christ. Christ is our head. As the body of Christ, we're the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And that figure of speech is fulfilled in every one of us collectively as a congregation of God's elect believing people, not just as individuals. And by the way, verse 22 is uh, quoted in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, and it's applied to Jesus. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Next, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus addresses God's people. Verse 22 is directed towards God. Verses 23 and 24 directed to God's people. You who fear the Lord, is that you? That's, that's us. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. As believers, we're not exempt from the fear of God. It's not the fear of condemnation. It's not the fear of judgment. Jesus has taken care of that for us. But God is still God, and we're still creatures, saved, justified, adopted as we are. And so, because God is who he is and we're who we are, there should still be this, this healthy reverence, respect for the person of God. And so it's a good thing to be described as those who fear the Lord. And where do we, what are we supposed to do? Praise him. We have so much to praise him for. Everything that Psalm 22 is talking about, our salvation through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, if anything else could even be compared to that, we owe God thanks and praise for everything because from him, through him, and to him are all things and there's nothing that we have that we've not received. Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of, of Israel. And here I would just remind you of how the, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old. And so we have these great and precious promises from God to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus all of God's great and precious promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so applied to us and our role in God's covenant dealings with his people, just remember that the New Testament calls Christians the children of promise and the true offspring of Abraham. The, the New Testament tells us that believers in Jesus are the children of God and the Israel of God. And so, this is being addressed to us. We have much to praise God for, much to be in awe 
of God for. In verse 24, David says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Even Jesus was delivered. But this is really encouraging to, to me, for one, should be encouraging to all of us. But because Jesus suffered and died and was raised again, he's brought us into a living hope. He's brought us into a new relationship with God. God will never despise or abhor our experiences. He knows what we're going through. And Jesus himself sympathizes with us because he's been tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. He's our faithful high priest. And he experienced the sense of abandonment from God. And he knows what it's like to feel like you're crying out to God day and night, and where's God? God does not despise our affliction. Verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And this is really encouraging because we're reminded here in verse 26 that God saves us not just to pardon us, not just to deliver us from judgment and condemnation, but he saves us to bless us. He saves us to give us fulfillment and satisfaction in our souls. He saves us to, to give us every good and perfect gift, to give us an abundant life. He saves us to fulfill what David again wrote in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the chief pleasure at God's right hand is knowing God personally. Having a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty God. Think of how Jesus spoke of this, this blessing of eating and being satisfied. John chapter 6. That the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The promise of Jesus Christ. 
And now listen to this, uh, this anthem of victory. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What a change of events. Most of the psalm is taken up with this doom and darkness of abandonment. But, but now we have the psalmist and we have the fulfillment, Jesus Christ, worshiping God in, in victory. Because it's not just that he personally is delivered. But this deliverance, this salvation, this redemption, this fulfillment of all of the promises of God extends to the end of the earth and to all the families of the nations. And here we're reminded that the, um, the, the promise of God to Abraham of blessing and salvation and promise-keeping was given from God to Abraham to all of the families and all of the nations of the earth. And we're also reminded of the, um, the scope of the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus made this promise to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And so when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, that's the great commission. It's not the great wish it will be accomplished. Jesus is not a defeated Savior. He's not weak. He's not needy. He doesn't depend on anyone. He's on his throne of glory and majesty. And from that place, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. And from that place of glory and majesty, he assures us that he will build his church and even the gates of hell itself will not be able to prevail against it. All the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations shall worship you. And there's certainly an already not yet tension of, of this. As we look around the world, we think, oh my goodness, the world is so terrible. But we need to realize that at one time the whole world was destroyed by a flood because of its great wickedness. And there was just Noah and his family. And that was it. At one time after the resurrection of Jesus there was about 120 believers and that was it. Now we pray for people, for believers, for missionaries from around the world on every continent. And it seems every nation and in different languages preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and expecting there to be fruit 
and results. And so while this is not perfectly fulfilled yet, it is fulfilled more than you can imagine, more than we appreciate. We need to stop focusing on the bad news in the news. We need to stop putting all of our eggs in the basket of the doom and gloomers. And we need to realize that behind the scenes, Jesus is at work. And he is saving sinners. And that does not make the headlines, but it does make the headlines of God's word. And it needs to encourage us. I know that we're all thinking about voting on Tuesday, but this, this is way more important and glorious and long-lasting than anything that will be decided on Tuesday. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations with Jesus at his right hand. He raises up kings and he brings them back down. And the whole point, the focus of God's dominion is not to make the world safe for democracy, but to save a multitude of sinners that no man can number from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Verses 29 through 31, just another example, another testimony that Jesus is a victorious Savior. All the prosperous of the earth, of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And I believe this will be uh, fully fulfilled on the new earth. And the big picture is Philippians 2, verses 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then notice how it ends. That he has done it. This is not a wish from God. It's not a request from God. It's, it's not any sense of cooperation between the creature and the creator. It is a confident affirmation that God has done it. It's as good as done. And it foreshadows the cry of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. And so, thinking about Psalm 22, if you feel abandoned by God, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. When things look darkest, God's not done. God has a way 
of speaking light out of darkness. He did it in the experience of King David. Certainly did it in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. He's done it in my life and my salvation, and yours as well. If you're a believer, God's not done. Don't lose hope. And don't get depressed by current events. Jesus is on his throne. He's a victorious savior. All is well in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such a faithful and glorious, worthy Savior and Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, your Son, God in the flesh. We thank you for how the whole Bible revolves around him. All of the law and the prophets and the Psalms speak of him. We thank you for how Jesus so incredibly, supernaturally fulfills the types and shadows and promises from the Old Testament scriptures. And we thank you for his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection and his majestic ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. Please encourage us and strengthen us, your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.